If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 14 to 18. So let me read for us verses 14 to 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, give us understanding this morning that we might walk in your truth and honor Christ with our lives. We pray this in his name. Amen. So we've been looking at, over the last several weeks, what it means to live as worthy citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we saw that in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so that verse has kind of set up everything that we've been looking at. And, and so Paul's been unpacking for us what it means to live in a manner worthy of the cross, of the gospel. And what we see here is God's concern isn't just for what we believe. He's also deeply concerned for how we live in light of what we believe, in light of the gospel. And so living as worthy citizens entails standing in unity. We saw that in verse 27 of chapter 1, courage We are called to be courageous in the midst of opposition, chapter 1, verse 28. A willingness to suffer for Christ, verse 29 of chapter 1. Pursuing humility and unity. We saw that in chapter 2, 1 1 through 5. And then last week, we looked at working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So here in verses 14 to 18... Paul's just continuing to further unpack for us what it means to live as worthy citizens of the gospel. And what I think he's doing here in verses 14 to 18 specifically is what it looks like for us to work out our own salvation. And so here in verse 14, we're given another imperative, another command by the Apostle Paul. And if you were to summarize it, it's simply this, don't be a complainer or an arguer. Don't be a complainer or an arguer. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. All things without grumbling or disputing. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when I first was studying this, I was kind of surprised that the first thing that Paul says after he calls us to work out our own salvation is don't grumble, and don't dispute. I don't think that would be the first thing that would come to our minds when we think about 
what Paul would want to say to us when it comes to working out our own salvation. But that's exactly what he does here. And that means that what he's saying here is of great importance for us. He could have said so many other possibilities. Like, don't commit sexual morality. Don't give in to bitterness and jealousy. It could have been a list of things, but he says here, don't be a grumbler and a disputer. Now, it's possible that the reason he's saying this is because this, is why, this might be going on in Philippi. The believers in Philippi might be grumbling and disputing. I mean, we do know in chapter 4 that there's conflict between two godly women in the church. So we're not totally sure if that's the case. But, but the point is this. Out of all the things Paul could have said, he says, in all things, don't grumble or dispute. Now that all things is important. It's important. Because Paul's saying this, that there is, there is never a circumstance in your life in which you have the right to complain. There is never a circumstance in your life in which you have the right to complain. There's, there's never a moment in your life in which you have the right to vent your frustrations, to let your steam off. There's never a time in which you are justified in your grumbling, in your complaining. Now this word grumbling, when you see it here, it should call to mind something in the Bible. And Bev read for us from Numbers 14, but it's also in Exodus. It should call to mind Israel's grumbling in the wilderness. They continue to grumble against Moses and Aaron, but Moses makes it very clear to them, you're not grumbling against us, you're ultimately grumbling against God. They saw God's deliverance in Egypt. They didn't just see it, they experienced it. They saw God's daily provision for them in the wilderness, and in moments they respond in thanksgiving and praise, but a few days later they then begin to grumble over and over again. And God is disturbed by their grumbling. And so when Paul says here, do all things without grumbling, you know what he's trying to say to us as new covenant, Holy Spirit filled, blood-bought Christians. Don't be like Israel. Don't be like Israel. You know, when you, when you think of people who grumble... Um, grumblers always create more grumblers. It's like gossip, right? You spend time with someone who gossips and you will become a gossiper with them. Complainers always create more complainers. But you need to hear this, that, that your grumbling has the power to destroy others, other people's joy in God. Your grumbling keeps people from feeling the freedom to rejoice. To rejoice in all that God is doing. You know, when you, when you think of the grumbling person, the grumbling person is the, is the individual who looks for every reason to leave a church rather than stay in a church. They're negative they're always seeing the worst side of things, and in light of that, they are always complaining or grumbling. Now, now we need to ask, 
why, why is grumbling so ugly? Why is it so vile in God's eyes? Because you might not be like me, but I often don't feel the weight of this sin in my life, even though it's true of my life that I grumble and complain. But it doesn't create the remorse and the sorrow and the repentance that I ought to have in regards to the sin. In fact, Gracie and I were, were driving yesterday to go to uh, the Pregnancy Care Center Relay, and I had a really bad sleep. I hadn't slept for, yeah, it was just bad sleep, and I woke up not happy. <laughs> and uh, I'm driving, and, uh, and all of a sudden traffic hits. It's 9.30 in the morning on Saturday, and I'm like, why is there traffic on nine, at 9.30 on Saturday morning? And, and Gracie's like, stop complaining. And I, and I go, you know, it's funny. I'm preaching on this tomorrow. And she's like, and she goes, she goes, you know, you're actually pretty good when it comes to grumbling or not complaining, except when traffic comes around. And, uh, but I don't feel the weight of that sin. It doesn't cause me to repent. It doesn't cause me to feel sorrow over my sin. There are other sins that I grieve. There are other sins that I wish I didn't do. But when I grumble and complain, I often don't feel the weight of what I am doing there. And so it's important that we ask, why is grumbling so ugly, so hideous in God's eyes? And I think the main reason is this. Grumbling is fundamentally pride manifesting itself. It's pride manifesting itself manifesting itself. A grumbling person is full of pride. You might not think you are a prideful person, but if you are a person who's constantly complaining and grumbling about your life circumstances, I think you are actually a person full of pride. Because grumbling is fundamentally saying, I deserve to be treated better by God. Grumbling is fundamentally discontentment with God and His ways in your life. It's to say to God, you're holding out on me. You deserve to treat me better. This is not the way I wanted my life to unfold. I don't like the lot you've given me in this life. And so to grumble is to say to God, I'm discontent with you and I'm discontent with what you're doing in my life. Now, if you were to put this command in the positive, because here in the passage, it's in the negative, right? Without grumbling or disputing. If you were to put it in the positive, the opposite of grumbling would be what? It'd be gratefulness, thanksgiving. And so Paul is really saying here, do all things with gratefulness and thanksgiving in your hearts. Which is exactly what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Here it's in the negative. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it's in the positive. Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I don't know what the will of God is in regards to your career, in regards to who you'll marry, in regards to how many children you'll have. None of us know that. But I do know that God's will for you is that in all circumstances you will give thanks to God, that you will have a heart of gratefulness, a heart of thanksgiving. You see, grumbling is the result of pride, but gratefulness is the result of a life of humility. 
The grumbler is proud, the grateful is humble. And this is why it's so repulsive in God's eyes when we grumble and complain. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so I encourage you, examine your life. And if you examine your life, will you discover a grumbling heart or a grateful heart? What heart will you discover? It might be worthwhile to ask someone who knows you well, who spends lots of time with you, am I a grateful person or am I a person who complains? So Paul says, do all things with, without grumbling, but he also says here, do all things without disputing. Disputing. What does he mean by that? Well, really, what, what Paul's speaking of here is he's not saying that we can't have legitimate discussions on issues. That's what it means to be human. But he is saying here that, that there's an attitude that must always challenge and resist rather than joyfully submit. It's a person who's always looking for ways to disagree and argue. It's, it's petty dialogue. Petty dialogue that calls everything into question. It's, it's in regards to leadership, but it's also in regards to just relationships. Remember, Israel was always disputing with Moses and Aaron. They didn't like their leadership. And they disputed, they complained, they argued with them. And so Paul here is saying, as Christians, we are called to be a people who are not given over to grumbling and arguing, arguing, disputing. We are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which means doing these things without grumbling and disputing. Now, in verses 15 to 16, Paul gives the reason the reason why, as Christians, we ought to, in all things, not grumble and argue. And if you were to summarize verses 15 to 16, really what Paul's saying is this. Do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you might be an example to a godless, immoral world. In other words, how you respond to your circumstances, whether with thanksgiving or grumbling, impacts your witness in the world. So look at verses 15 and 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul's saying, don't give in to grumbling, don't give in to disputing, so that these things will be true of you. Now, Paul states a lot of things here. It's one sentence, but it's just a list of things, okay? So we're going to teach, take each one and move through them really quickly. So the first thing he says here is, is, in your choosing to not grumble or dispute, the purpose of that is so that you might be blameless and innocent. Blameless and innocent. Blameless here, Paul's not saying that you will be sinless. He's rather saying that you would be found without fault. Really what he's getting at is that there would be no grounds 
for someone to blame you of wrongdoing. He's speaking here of a life of integrity. A life of integrity. Blamelessness. That we would be found to be blameless. Not only that, he says innocent. Here, Paul's speaking of moral innocence. Really, the, the innocence of a child. Or, or if you think of a, a glass of wine, the, the purity of unmixed wine. It has this idea of purity before God. So, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you would be blameless and innocent. But not only that, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So in this small phrase, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, we see who we are, we see who we're to be, and we, we see the context in which God has placed us to be this. So first, we are the children of God. God has called us to himself when we were once enemies and he adopted us and made us his children. But not only that, we are to be children without blemish. Without blemish. And the context in which we are called to be that is in this crooked and twisted generation. Now Paul here is actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Verse 5. It's the song of Moses. Israel's about to enter the promised land. They've wandered the wilderness for 40 years. The, the first generation has died off because of their sin. The second generation is now about to enter the promised land. And Moses begins to sing to them. And in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, he speaks about their future abandonment of the Lord in light of their grumbling in the wilderness. And he calls Israel, you are no longer the children of God. You are blemished, crooked, and twisted. That's what he calls them. He says, Israel, you are no longer God's children. You are blemished, crooked, and you are a twisted generation. And Paul here is taking that text and he's using Israel as an example for us to avoid. Israel was meant to be what to the nations? They were meant to be a light to the nations. But they became like the nations. They became crooked. They became twisted. They became blemished like the world. And Paul's saying that you and I, we are called to be children of God without blemish in this crooked and twisted generation. You see, by, by refusing to grumble... Like the Israelites, we as Christians show ourselves to be what Israel never could be, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be children of God without blemish, without blemish. That word blemish is important. It should remind you of something. Israel's um, sacrificial system where they would take a lamb, but that lamb had certain requirements. That lamb was to be found without spot or blemish. In other words, it had to be a lamb that was, in a sense, perfect. A lamb that would be given over, devoted to God as a sacrifice, but it had to be the best of all lambs. And we know that Jesus 
is the lamb without blemish or spot. Hebrews speaks about Jesus being able to offer himself fully over to God as an acceptable sacrifice because he is the one who is found without spot or blemish. He's the sin sacrifice because he has no blemish or spot and he does that for our sins. But the point that Jesus or Paul is getting at here is that he was able to give himself over because he was found without blemish. He was the lamb without blemish. He was able to offer himself as a gift to the Lord. So Paul's saying here that we as children of God, just as Christ was the Son of God, we are to offer ourselves as a sacrifice pleasing to God without spot or blemish. Which means, brothers and sisters, it's, it's not enough that you're the children of God. You must be found without blemish. You must strive as a child of God to live a life without blemish in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. Now notice, Paul then says, among whom you shine as lights or stars in the world. So you're children of God without blemish in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation, and it's in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation that you're called to shine as stars in the world, to shine as stars in the universe. Now you've got to think of the imagery that Paul is using here. Us city, us city folk, it's hard for us to grasp this because we never see the stars because of the lights in our city. But if you go outside the city... If you, if you were living in Rome at this time, or in Philippi, and what the night sky would have looked like, because there was no electricity, the night sky would have been lit up with stars. They would have seen incredible amounts of stars. And so the backdrop that Paul has here is there's this darkness, this dark night sky But in the midst of that darkness, there are shining stars all in the midst of that darkness. That's the imagery that Paul has in mind here for us as Christians. We are in the midst of darkness. We are in the midst of a society that is twisted and crooked. And yet in that midst, in that darkness, we are called to shine like the stars in the heavens. Which really Paul's just simply saying is this. We're called to stand out. We're called to stand out in our world. In the midst of darkness we are called to be light. We are called to shine. And then he goes on saying holding fast to the word of life. And I think what Paul's saying here is that the way in which we shine like the stars is by holding fast to the word of life. What does Paul mean by word of life? Well, Jesus is described as the word of life in 1 John 1.1. He's called the word of life. And so Paul, no doubt here, is referring to Jesus, but it's, it's more than just Christ. I think in the context, Paul's referring to the gospel itself and the word. 
which of course is summed up in Jesus Christ. And so in a crooked and twisted generation where there will be ample temptation and ample reason for you to no longer hold fast, Paul's saying, hold fast. Hold fast to the word of life. Take hold of Christ and don't let go because the darkness is powerful. And when you no longer hold fast, you will lose your ability to shine like the stars. You know, it, it's, it's interesting to me that churches, Christians, that, that buy into the culture, that capitulate to the culture, that compromise to the culture, they abandon the word of God, they abandon the gospel. Those churches often have become irrelevant. You know, uh, some of you know probably the name Rob Bell. He was a Christian speaker and writer, and, and he's basically really gone off the deep end. And I remember watching an interview with him where he, he said that in order for Christians to thrive and survive in our secular culture, they need to adapt to the culture. They need to get in line with the views and values of the culture. And, I, and I, I'm listening to that interview and I'm just like, does, does he even realize what he's saying? Imagine, imagine if the Christians in the very beginning thought that way. Imagine if they were like, you know, in order to reach the Romans, we need to become like the Romans. No, no, what, what caused Christianity to spread across the world was the fact that the Christians chose not to live like the Romans. They chose to shine as stars in the midst of darkness. They displayed another way of life to the world. And many people saw that and they came to faith because of that Christian witness. See, we must be, as a people of God, committed to holding fast to the word of life. Because there will be pressure upon us to compromise. Now we need to not get away from the main point of the passage. Which is to do all things without grumbling or disputing. So that you might be like this. Right? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you might stand out. That you might shine in the midst of our twisted and crooked generation. I don't think we fully grasp the impact that we can have upon people's lives who don't know Jesus if we simply choose to not grumble or dispute. I don't think we grasp the light that we can have, the, the shining that we can have, simply by choosing to live a life of thanksgiving in all circumstances. Our society is a grumbling and disputing society. You just have to go on social media to see that. We live in a culture that is self-pitying and a culture that is constantly disputing and arguing. And if we as Christians simply choose to live a life of thanksgiving and joyfulness towards God in all circumstances, in your workplaces, when your boss is being a total jerk towards you, when your neighbors 
are frustrating you, when your friends, whatever the circumstance, to simply choose to live a life of thanksgiving by the power of the Spirit, the impact you can have is incredible. I actually know of a person, a friend of mine, um, who was working in a job, and um, it was a really bad environment. The, the managers treated the staff poorly, and um, they didn't pay them well, they overworked them. And this person chose, in that context, to not grumble or complain. And so whenever their coworkers got together, they would always gossip and complain about those above them and just how poorly they were treated. And this individual chose, I'm not going to complain. I'm just, I'm just going to do my work and I'm going to do it with thanksgiving in my heart. And, you know, not, no fruit came from that, except after this individual had left that job, several months later, she got a call or a text from a friend who worked there and said, I'd like to go out for coffee with you. And so they met up. And this person said to my friend, I noticed when you were at this job with me that you were the one person who never grumbled or complained, despite the fact that it was a horrible situation. And I want to know why. And that allowed this individual to share with them their testimony about how Christ had saved them. And, and because of that, there's no circumstance in which I ought not be thankful. And so there was no fruit at the beginning, but it led to this incredible conversation simply by choosing not to grumble or complain because of the circumstances. Brothers and sisters, we have that opportunity in our society today, in your workplace, with your neighbors, choosing to live a life of thanksgiving. So Paul calls them to not grumble or dispute so that they would be blameless, unblemished children of God, that they would shine like the stars holding fast to the word of life. And now in verse 16, he gives further reason for why he desires for them to live this way. Look at verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It's an interesting statement. Paul almost kind of takes us on a U-turn. Paul's heart, as in one sense their pastor, is to see them live in such a way that in the day of Christ, that is the coming day of the Lord Jesus Christ, where Christ makes all things new. He's or, he already alludes to this in chapter 1, verse 10, where he prays that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. But Paul, Paul's desire here is that they would live in such a way that at the day of Christ, he would be able to be proud that he did not run or labor in vain, in his efforts to see them live this way. What does Paul mean that he wants to be proud? He's not saying that he can, on that day, be arrogant and, and proud in himself. No, it's really more this idea of rejoicing. That he'll be able to rejoice that his efforts in serving the believers in Philippi were not in vain. It's, it's more the, the image of a father 
finding so much pride in seeing his children walk for the first time. That kind of pride, that kind of joy. Paul's saying, I'm longing that at the day of Christ, I'm looking forward to that day. My mind's set on that day, and so that's why I'm focused on you living like this now. And I'm longing for that day so that when we reach that day and and Christ transforms you into the image of himself, I'm longing to be able to say, I didn't run or labor in vain. One of the motivating factors in your life for living for Jesus should be the godly men and women who have worked tirelessly to see you grow into the person God would have you to be. That should motivate you. Whether it was your mom or your dad who who prayed with you consistently, read the Bible with you, served you. That should be one of the motivations in your life for why you ought to respond in godliness. For why you ought to pursue Jesus Christ with your whole heart. Paul's saying, listen, do this because I don't want to run or labor in vain. Not only that, we we also ought to have this same desire as Paul. That we would live in such a way that our living for Jesus wouldn't be in vain. Does that fear, does that cause fear in you? Do you think about that? Does it cause fear that you could live a life for Jesus that's done in vain? I fear that. I want to be found faithful. And I want to serve the Lord in such a way that I'm not running in vain or laboring in vain. In 1 Corinthians 15, after Paul unpacks these glorious truths about the hope of the resurrection, what's coming for us, he he then says this, In light of this hope, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, we are called to abound in the work of the Lord because we know that our efforts in the Lord are not in vain. We might not see the fruit right now, but one day we will. So Paul's concerned about his labor not being in vain. He's confident that it won't be in vain because he knows his efforts are in the Lord. And that's why he can say what he's about to say in verses 17 to 18. Look at verses 17 to 18. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all Likewise, you, shall also, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. That's a confusing sentence by Paul. What's he saying here? This, this picture of me being poured out as a drink offering on the, the sacrificial offering of your faith. Well, in the Old Testament, a priest would, would offer an animal sacrifice. But later, he would then pour out a sacrificial libation that is liquid to complement the sacrifice. 
And so the drink offering in the Old Testament was the complete dedication of something to the Lord. And it's possible that Paul here is actually referring to his own death. Because in 2 Timothy 4.6, Paul uses, the only other time Paul uses this language of drink offering, and it's in reference, it's regards to his death. And so Paul's saying that if my labor for you and, and now my imprisonment here in Rome leads to my death, but it's a sacrifice upon the sacrificial service of your faith. In other words, this sacrificial service that comes from your faith, your living for Jesus Christ, if my service, if my sacrifice is, is a drink offering on top of your sacrifice, in other words, we're working together towards a goal, I'm glad. And I can rejoice with you all, even at the reality of my own death. Even if I'm to die in service to Jesus and in service to you, I can rejoice and be glad with you all because our service to Jesus isn't in vain. And that's why in verse 18 he says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Literally, both verse, verse 17 and 18, it's actually better translated as, I rejoice and co-rejoice with you. You also should rejoice and co-rejoice with me. So Paul's saying, don't grieve at the possible reality of my death. Rejoice with me that we have served together and offered an acceptable sacrifice to God and our labor together isn't in vain. That's what Paul's getting at. Now, Paul has made mention of joy four times before this passage. In chapter 1, verse 4, he prays for them with joy. Chapter 1, verse 18, he rejoices that the gospel is being proclaimed even when it's from false motives. Chapter 1, verse 25, it says that he will continue with them for their progress and joy in the faith. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being unified. And here in verse 18, is actually the first time Paul commands them to rejoice. So he's, he's spoken about his own joy, but now he actually commands them to be filled with joy. Which, of course, as we continue to go through Philippians, he continues to come back to this theme of joy. Now notice this, that verse 14 begins with a command to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And verse 18 ends with a command to rejoice and be glad in service to Jesus. This is the call upon our lives. That we would live joy-filled, sacrificial lives, sacrificial service, to Jesus, joy-filled sacrificial service to Jesus that will cause us to shine like the stars in the universe in contrast to a grumbling, disputing, crooked, and twisted generation. That's our calling. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Rather, do all things with joy-filled sacrificial service for the cause of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, 
we will find out that our labor was not in vain. Let's pray. Father, there is so many excuses and reasons for why we ought to complain and grumble. But you call us to be different from the world. And so help us by the power of your spirit to be a people full of gratefulness and thanksgiving in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And it's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen.